What a beautiful, beautiful song, beautiful text based on Psalm 23. Our shepherd will supply every need. We know our great shepherd leads us into those uh, paths of righteousness for his name's sake, and he leads us by the still waters, and he makes us to rest and lie down, and we become, I love that last line, like a child at home. We were out of town this weekend, and if you see some, some guys hobbling around this morning, we had our uh, 28th annual, is that 29th annual Donnie Sherman Memorial Golf Tournament over the weekend at Fall Creek Falls, very appropriate. Donnie Sherman loved the all-you-could-eat crab legs at Fall Creek Falls, uh, so we celebrated uh, some fellowship. It proves my theory that all men are boys, no matter how old we are. Uh, a lot of, of horseplay, but uh, a lot of fellowship and, and good times as well, but if you see people hobbling, you know why. But uh, my kids came with me to uh, my, my wife's parents' house is not far from there, so they came and took the kids, and last night we were sitting on the couch, and kind of rest. We got home about 8 o'clock last night, and I was tired. We played 45 holes of golf in about 32 hours, uh, so I was, I, I don't get any sympathy complaining about me being sore from our 70-year-olds who uh, go and play with us as well, but Isaiah said something. He was sitting on the couch next to me, and Isaiah, do you remember what you said? He was, he was with my in-laws on Friday night, and, and last night he said, it's so good to be home. I love being home, and he loves being home. That's what we get as Christians. We get that feeling of being at home with the Lord. And even if you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, we know that he is with us. So if you're here today and you feel sad or you feel lonely, know these two things. You are loved and you are not alone. You are loved and you are not alone. I promise you those two things are true. If you stick around here long enough, you will take those truths to heart is my prayer. Today we're going to quickly really approach the end of the letter of the first Corinthians. I know some of you feel like we've been in this a long time. We're going to start a series in Philippians at the end of the month. But before we do that, we're going to wrap up this first Corinthians series by going where Paul is, is taking us as he concludes this letter. And he really wants the Corinthian church and our church too, I think, to take a step back it's easy to get wrapped up in all the news. It's easy to get wrapped up in all that's going on in our little world. He wants us to take a step back and consider what the big picture is really all about, what really matters foundationally in our lives. He wants us to understand what God's plan is for his church and for his people and ultimately for all creation. In order to do this, Paul reminds us of where all this is heading. Chapter 15, we're going to start next week, one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture, because it's full of resurrection hope. For, for people who are grieving, I want you to know that there is real resurrection hope. And Paul is pleading with us to maintain an eternal perspective. Andy made this great graphic. It's his last one he's going to make with us, so I, I told him he's going out with a bang. This is beautiful. Uh, we're going to see how the, the future hope of the gospel, the promises of what the future holds in store for us who love the Lord, that hope is going to prevail over death, over sin, and over everything that's wrong in our world and in our lives. So before we get to chapter 15, we have one more passage from chapter 14 that wraps up this 
whole three chapter uh, 12, 13, 14 that are about spiritual gifts and how we conduct ourselves in worship. And it's a great text for today. It continues along the lines from last week's message about how to conduct worship services in such a way that it builds up the church and not waste our time. But really, it's a, it's a summary statement of the entire uh, last three chapters that ultimately points us towards taking the long view of church, taking the long view of church, building up the body the right way. You know, church is not a provider of religious goods and services. You don't come to church to get your fix for the week, right? You come to church because you're part of the body of Christ. That's a big deal. In our culture of instant gratification, where the customer is promised to have it your way right away, your way right away now, Paul's gonna show us a very different way to live as the body of Christ. So will you please stand in honor of God's word as we read our text for today, the end of chapter 14, verses 26 through 40. Hear now the word of the Lord. What then, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each one of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, don't panic over this next section, okay? I'm going to explain it in a minute, all right? Don't come at me. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they should be in submission as the law also says. Are you getting nervous? Is it hot in here? <sighs> if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers and sisters, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may have a seat. Man, I love how when you preach through a whole book of the Bible, it forces you to preach on text you normally wouldn't take on in the pulpit, right? I don't think those verses are in the lectionary uh, that, that we get to kind of avoid these things. But the, the truth is that I had a, a beautiful uh, saying that I always remember uh, one of my seminary professors said that when you read something in the Bible that doesn't sit well with you, when something confuses you, when you reach something in the Bible that maybe you, you don't agree with, it, it, maybe it's more like nails on a chalkboard, you should then set up a little altar like Samuel and the Ebenezer 
You should set up a little altar right there to the Lord and say, God, I don't understand this. Your ways are higher than my ways. You are bigger than me, and your thoughts are higher than my thoughts, infinitely so, and so I just worship you. That's a time to worship. That's a time to say, God, you are great, I am not, and just worship there. I pray it's what we can do today, is just say, God, we don't understand all this, but we are gonna be reminded that, as 2 Timothy uh, 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So we're gonna, uh, I, I don't like that word inerrant. You know, the Bible is inerrant. Uh, that gets into unnecessary debates, I think. I like to say that scripture is exactly as God intended it to be. Scripture is as God intended it to be. He wrote it, not me, and not any humans. He, he wrote it through humans, but uh, God ordained scripture to be as it is. We're gonna get to that part about women in a minute, but don't miss the main points of this text over something that, that may disturb you, okay? Paul's doing his best to make sure that the, the, the conduct and the activities of these believers in Corinth are actually making them into a healthier, more effective church. And he's doing the same thing for us. Eight times in this letter, he uses this beautiful Greek word, oikadamen. Oikadamen means to build up. It means to edify. I love that word edify. An edifice is a strong structure. I was showing a, a young couple into our church this morning, and this, I love pe bringing people into this room for the first time. They don't build them like they used to. And this room has steel structure that supports all of it. And it, it, my prayer is that it'll be here for another 100 years, that there'll be Christians worshiping in this space long after we're gone. And that word for edify means to build this great structure as a church as the body of Christ, as the people, which the church is. You know, I love uh, going to Habitat for Humanity. Our church has kind of gained a reputation that I'm pretty proud of as a, as a proficient uh, church when it comes to Habitat for Humanity. We have some, you know, builders, some engineers, some contractors, and, and when they have a, a hard task, they, they call on Woodmont, and I'm kind of proud of that. I don't know what I'm doing personally. Ron bought me a framing hammer, which I use once a year at Habitat, and, and my hand hurts when I use it because I just do what I'm told. But uh, our church, not me, but our church has a reputation for being good at Habitat for Humanity. And my favorite day at Habitat is the first day on, on a build site because it's framing day. It's framing day, and that's when you get to swing the big hammer. And when you show up, it's a, a slab of concrete. It's just a slab. And when we finish that day, you know, eight hours later, it looks like a house. All the walls are, are up, and they're bolted into the concrete, and, and they're, they're tied together with a, a top layer of two by fours that are holding everything in place. And sometimes we even get the, the trusses up that, that make the roof, and, and those things are connected to the whole structure with uh, several bolts, strong big bolts, and hurricane ties, I think they're called, like these brackets. And uh, Habitat has told us that when a storm comes through a community, the, the houses that are still standing the best are usually Habitat houses because they overbuild them because they're using volunteers. They want to make sure that they're, they're going to last. And these are for people who are in need, so they want to make sure that they're going to be standing strong. That's how Paul is wanting us to think of our church, that we're, we're tying it all together. We're strengthening it. 
We're, we're bolting things into the firm foundation of the gospel itself. We're, we're rooting the structure in God's word. We are connected by bonds that tie us together on a spiritual level that, of koinonia fellowship. Paul sums up this whole section in verse 26. He says, what then, brothers and sisters, when you come together, when you gather, we're told to gather, each one is a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. Everyone brings something to the table. We need you. Everything that you bring to the table is a gift to our church, and we're so grateful to have it. That sounds like I'm trying to get you to come to church and, and give something. I'm not. I'm saying that you, you make us better, and, and I appreciate that. And then he says, let all things be done for building up, oikadamen, for building up the structure. Christians are commanded to, we, we gather on the Lord's day, we come together, it says. You know, I really don't like the idea of virtual church. I'm just gonna say it. I've seen some, you know, churches that have online church or virtual church. I'm, I'm not saying you can't gather spiritually when you're sick or when you're away. You, you join our hearts in fellowship, right? Even when you're away, but it's not the same, is it? It's just not the same. We need to come together physically if we're able. And I know we have several dear saints who are no longer able to come to the church. And I'm not talking to them. We have several saints who are incarcerated or in, in treatment. I understand that they can't be here. But if we are able, we should come together for mutual edification, for building up the body. Those smiles that you see in the hallway, those parking lot conversations, the encouragement, the, the jokes that I hear in the hallways, uh, comparing how far we drive the ball with, with Knox Rogers over here this morning, those things are important and they matter, even if it seems silly. Remember that the church is not a building, neither is it a company, neither is it a brand that we're trying to build, a church is people. A church is a localized expression of the global body of Christ, the, those who have given their lives to follow Jesus Christ. And when we gather with our family of faith, we, we join in those bonds of fellowship. We encourage one another. We build one another up. We strengthen the connections between us just like a Habitat crew tying a structure together. This can only happen if we know what's going on and can understand one another and have some organization. If we meet and our meetings are just a bunch of chaos, a bunch of noise, and, and then no one is gonna be built up. That's why Paul reinforces how important clear prophetic teaching is during our gatherings. I don't like the way this microphone looks. I feel like it's like Garth Brooks a little bit, even though I, I said it in Sunday school, I didn't know who Garth Brooks was, but I, I know who he is. And then he wears a microphone like this. But I was told by our sound people and by Aaron that when I wear the one that goes here, that they can't hear me as well when I turn. So I'm wearing this one because I think it makes it clearer what hopefully what God is saying to us through his word. That's why I switched microphones, if you're wondering. It's not because I'm a diva or want to be a rock star. It's because I think it makes things clearer. We don't need everybody speaking all at once so that no one can understand anything. And we don't need everybody speaking in tongues that only God can understand because that doesn't help us. Neither do we need clever or catchy teachings that some person 
has invented or come up with on their own. We need life-giving truth. And where do we find that truth? We find it in God's word and in God's people. I, I heard about a major decision that someone changed their mind on after a Sunday school lesson last week, and the teacher told me about it and said it was the best compliment I've ever received. I've just taught the lesson on, on having faith in, in God, and the person came up to me and said they changed their mind about a decision. That's, that's a beautiful thing. That's God's word at work in us. So how can we ensure that God's people are getting that, that life-giving truth on a steady diet of God's word? We do that by prioritizing order in our worship gatherings. That's point number one in our, we prioritize building up and order in all that we do. We have to have some structure. We prioritize edification and order. Look again at verses 30 to 33. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one in order so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. I was telling a couple of uh, lay people in our church today, we need to have them preach, not just so I can get 20 hours of my week back, but so that we need more voices sharing with us what God is revealing to them. We need to hear stories. You know, babies crying doesn't bother me, okay? Yeah, I love babies, so yeah, bye, bye Harper. I, Morgan got to take care of Harper during uh, Sunday school hour today, it was great. Life group hour, sorry, we're calling them life groups now. I'm telling myself. If a revelation's made, verse 31, let the first be silent. Verse 31, let people prophesy in order so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. Verse 32, the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. That's about self-control. That's saying, hey, Nathan, don't preach for an hour because people are hungry, they're tired, they need to go, right? Self-control. For God's not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. A God of peace. Think back to the beginning, okay? The beginning of everything ever. Genesis 1. What does it say? The beginning of our Bibles. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. When the Bible says that the, the earth was void and without form, the, the word in Hebrew for void also means chaos. It means there was no structure. There was no order to creation. The world was unorganized until God stepped in and said, whoa, 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 whoa. enough. Let there be light. And he began to separate and bring order to the chaos of creation. God is not a God of confusion. He's not a God of disorder, but a God of peace, a God of harmony, a God of balanced structure. I'll admit, I'm, I'm not the most organized person in the world, okay? Uh, I, I know how to staff my weaknesses, though. I know how to staff my weaknesses. I married Morgan. She's the most organized person I know, and she keeps our house running. I, I, we, we, I didn't hire, we hired Aaron Duncan, who's incredibly organized. And you should see the order of service planned down to the second, it usually blows it when it gets to the preacher, but uh, he is so meticulous and organized. I'm so grateful for our organized leaders in our church, our deacon chairs, who have all been meticulous people, our finance committees, our personnel committees, and so on. 
I know that church polity can be burdensome, okay? It can wear people out. I've heard from people who won't serve on committees anymore because they've been burned out or they've seen how the sausage is made and they don't want to be a part of it anymore. But a healthy church has polity and policies that it likes and that it follows. It has structure that actually helps it to function as a effective body of Christ. Polity is how church functions. Verse 40, skip to the end, says all things in a church should be done decently and in order. From our staff meetings to our members meetings to our children's programming to our order of worship that Aaron plans, our structure is how we operate. We should strive in all that we do to make sure that we're aiming for mutual edification carried out with purposeful structure and planning. Because what we do in the church matters. What we do in the church has eternal consequences. All right, I've put it off long enough. Let's talk about women. <laughs> I had some good advice, not good advice, that's sarcastic. I had some bad advice uh, on the golf trip about how to handle this passage. I'm not gonna do what was suggested to me. Obviously, verses 34 and 35 are controversial. A lot of ink has been spilled uh, trying to figure out what's going on here. Some very serious scholars, I'd like to just take this route, very good scholars, very Gordon Fee, some very famous New Testament scholars have said there is a lot of evidence that shows that these two verses are not original to the letter that Paul had written to the church in Corinth that we know as 1 Corinthians that it was a, an addition that a later editor had made and got copied into it. I'd like to take that route and just say, don't worry about these verses, they're not in the Bible. But there's some other scholars that I very much respect who say these verses are indeed original to Paul. So let's assume that Paul did write these words. What is going on? Let's start with the fact that women very clearly prophesied in the New Testament church during worship services. Just a few chapters back, Alan Wharton preached on this passage in chapter 11 uh, a few weeks ago. Paul says this in verse 5, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. He's assuming that women will indeed pray and prophesy, and he's talking about in the context of the gathered worship assembly. When Paul's talking about prophecy here, he's talking about Remember, prophecy is not future telling. It's not saying what's going to happen. Prophecy is a spiritual gift of truth telling. Prophecy is a spiritual gift of cutting through the lies of this world and, and getting a revealed, life-giving truth from God and sharing it for the mutual edification of the body of Christ. That's what prophecy is. Women did this in the assembly. When, uh, again, in verse 31 of this chapter, chapter 14, prophecy was spoken in the gathering so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. So it's clear in the Bible that, that gifted women who were given this spiritual gift by God would help teach men and women, just like Priscilla in Acts chapter 18 taught Apollos, a great uh, Bible teacher and preacher and church planner as well. But other, again, if, if Paul did write these verses, what's he saying then? If, he's, if he already has said earlier that women can prophesy in the gathering, what's he saying here? 
Well, I think what he's making the point is he's received a report that, that these bad things are happening with a specific group of women in this church. And he's trying to address it. Because in the, the first century culture of Corinth, it was even more patriarchal than we live in now. Men ruled everything, right? And, and that's not the way of the Bible. That's, I'm not, I don't think patriarchy is God's way. I don't. I don't think that's revealed in Scripture. It also was a very pagan culture. There was a, a deep, deep sinful licentiousness in Corinth. And Paul is deeply concerned that the church in Corinth would do nothing to unnecessarily offend or ostracize the church from the rest of the, cult, the culture in Corinth. He's trying to make sure that they don't gain this reputation as that crazy place where a bunch of loud women just get up and yap and yammer every Sunday. That's not what would be good for the church. Maybe Paul's concerned with this group that's apparently you know, vocal in trying to sift out prophecy. One scholar that I read said that uh, maybe a bunch of women were, were calling out their husbands. Their husbands would prophesy, and they would say, no, 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 that's not what God's saying. And they would really try to work out their marital problems in the context of Sunday morning worship. Let's not bring our marital problems into our worship leading, is what Paul is saying. When he writes these verses in verse 34, that women should be in submission as the law says, he's probably referring to the Torah, the Genesis narrative where a woman is created second, man's created first. And here's my, my summary on this issue, okay? Yes, men and women are both equally created in God's divine image, okay? Men and women are also designed differently, though, by God. Believing that these differences in men and women are intentional by God and that it takes both genders to accurately display God's image to the rest of the world used to be called complementarianism in theological circles. Now that word is normally used to, to mean hierarchy, that, that all men should be in authority over all women. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. I'm grateful to be part of a church that doesn't believe that spiritual gifts come in pink and blue. I'll say that again. Woodmont does not believe that spiritual gifts come in pink and blue. There are some very gifted Bible teachers who are women. I'm so glad that they teach men and women in our church. There are some very gifted Bible preachers who are both men and women. I'm glad that they can preach in our church. I'm also glad that there are shepherds who are gifted by God, both male and female, who help pastor and shepherd our flock. I'm so grateful for that, and that we don't prohibit anyone from utilizing their spiritual gifts in that way. We are a much better church for the contributions of our male and female leaders who are functioning together. I hope you can see that. I also think that men are called to lead, especially in the home, that we can't abdicate leadership to only women who tend to be more spiritual, I feel like, than men as well. We need men and women to both step up and use their gifts that God has given them to lead in the appropriate ways. The key for all of us here is, is point number two, don't panic at, at the M word here. We should all pro prioritize deference and modesty. That's what Paul is talking about. If you grew up in a very, you know, heavy-handed 
youth group and you heard that word modesty used like a hammer uh, to hurt you, I'm sorry, that's not what I'm trying to do here. The, the dictionary just simply defines modesty as the quality or state of being unassuming or moderate in the estimation of one's abilities. Biblically speaking, modesty is very closely related to humility. That's what Paul's talking about in these verses for the whole church, for men and women, specifically this group of women, perhaps. Talking about modesty, again, is, is kind of a tricky thing, but it's about showing moderation in how confident we are in our own thinking or in our own abilities. Paul's concerned about the church appearing immodest, being brazenly loud and, and chaotic and selfish. And Paul's been preaching about showing deference to one another out of love throughout the entire letter. His point here is that modesty and deference in the church helps us get out of the way of what God is doing in the long run. It's not about getting up and performing your agenda. It's about what is best for the church in the long run. And that means playing our part in those equal roles. I have very godly friends, let me just say, who believe that only men should pastor. You probably know that the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 says that only men can pastor, and that's something that our church disagrees on uh, typically. But again, if you believe that, if you read that differently, there's grace. It's not a salvific issue. It's not a gospel issue. It's nothing to divide fellowship on. My mentor, godliest person I know, and I disagree on this issue, and we love each other and are in great fellowship together and have both healthy ministries, so uh, there is grace there. Finally, uh, in the last four verses, let's move on from that. Paul wants to remind us to, I love God's word, because, you know, I, I get to parts of the Bible, and I'm like, I would never have said it that way. Just proves that God wrote it, and, and not me or, or any other person. In the last four verses, Paul wants to, to show us how we should prioritize God's way of doing things. Prioritize God's ways over any kind of human ways. Uh, in verse 37, he makes it plain. If anyone thinks that he or she's a prophet or spiritual, he or she, again, the Greek could imply he or she, should acknowledge the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. This is how God works in church, Paul's saying. With all, things, with all things being done in the church in order to build it up and done decently and in order. If anyone thinks they're doing spiritual things, if anyone thinks they're teaching God's truth, but they don't prioritize mutual edification and healthy structure, they're not really spiritual. They're just operating out of some human compulsion, out of their own feeble flesh. And Paul wraps up this whole section in verses 39 and 40. So my brothers and sisters earnestly desire to prophesy and don't forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Yeah, sure, seek those good spiritual gifts. Pray that God would, would grant you spiritual gifts Seek after God's truth and God's spiritual power, but try to do everything the right way, God's way. So what do we do with this? All right, a few key takeaways that I see for us here, okay? Number one, church is necessary 
for our spiritual edification. The gathered body of Christ, when it's done right, and we try to do it right, we don't always, we try, makes us stronger so that we can withstand the schemes of the devil and the trials of this world and stand like a habitat house in a hurricane. Let's show up each Lord's Day not only seeking to be built up, but ready to play our part in building up others around us. That leads to point number two. Mutual edification takes intentionality. You have to do it with intention. Who can you encourage today? Who can you visit? Who can you call? Who can you pray with? Who can you send a letter to? Who can you cheer on as they are struggling in their walk with Christ? It's all of our jobs to do this together. Number three, let's do the work of planning, preparing, and structuring how we do church. You know, our, our polity and policy matters. I'm grateful for our committees, for our deacons, for our small group leaders, for our, our ministry leaders, for our staff, absolutely. This morning, someone was panicked because they locked their keys in their car, and I said, don't worry, we have Ron. And I called Ron, and he said, I'll take care of it. And within seconds, I heard an alarm going off, and then I, within seconds, the alarm stopped, and I was like, Ron just solved the problem. It's our staff, I'm so grateful for uh, the way our staff works as well. Together, again, we all work together to make our church in a healthy uh, structure, and I think we can always do better. All right, number four, let's restore healthy biblical modesty uh, among men and women. I'm not just talking about the way we dress, right? I'm talking about how the world sees us. Does the world look at Woodmont and see a bunch of braggarts? Do they see a bunch of loudmouth, uh, you know, arrogant types, or do they see authentic humble servants who are doing life together and love God and love one another. Number five, let's try to do things God's way. Let's aim high for how we do missions, for how we do preschool, for how we do student ministry. Let's aim high in all of those things. Let's not copy a successful business. Let's not copy a, what a big church does. Let's pray and let's look at God's word and try to do church like he tells us to. That sounds exciting to me. It sounds scary, but it sounds exciting to me. I hope you'll join us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have called us to aim high with how we do church. Help us to do church your way. Help us to structure church in a way that makes us a healthy body of believers. God, help us to always prioritize building up the body and in doing so with decency and with order. God, forgive us for loving the sound of our own voice. Forgive us for uh, feeling some kind of human pride and, and sinful pride in how we do church. I pray that we would only boast in your name and your mission being accomplished. God, we love to see how you work in and through your body, the church. God, we know that when when Jesus ascended, that you sent your spirit a few days later in order to fill us, the body, with your power so that we may go out into the world after gathering together on your day and be your hands and feet in a world that desperately needs it. God, you have saved us not only from sin and from death and from hell, 
but you have saved us for the purpose of being your body and carrying out your good purposes so that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we pray that as we enter into a time of communion, that you would come and meet with us, that we would leave this place transformed by a genuine encounter with you, the living God. We pray this in the high and the holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.